you look at the many challenges that we face, be they local, national or global, whether it's economic inequality, whether it's dealing with the many global crises, um, democracy hasn't done very well. And ironically, when we did have a crisis, such as the global financial crisis, we had to resort to instruments and political measures that look to me a lot more Chinese than democratic. With technological change and the rise of non-Western powers, such as China and other BRICS countries, the world order is undoubtedly transforming. As their global economic influence grows, non-Western powers can be expected to play an increasingly active role in shaping global institutions and norms. So how did we get here? And what are the reasons that led to the current crisis in the European Union and of liberal democracy? How can civil society play a role in addressing some of these challenges? And what do we need in order to create an inclusive and functioning global political space? You're listening to the Global Futures Podcast. My name is Joel Sandu, and in this episode, I'll be speaking with Wolfgang Reinecke, president of the Global Public Policy Institute in Berlin. We'll be discussing the increasing insecurity and uncertainties that led to the populist and nationalist backlash that we are seeing across Europe, the state of the liberal world order, and what can be done about these developments. Our guest today is president of the Global Public Policy Institute. He was the founding dean of the School of Public Policy at the Central European University in Budapest and a non-resident senior fellow at Brookings Institution. Wolfgang Reinecke also supports the Global Governance Futures Robert Bosch Foundation Multilateral Dialogues as a member of the steering committee and as a senior fellow. Earlier in his career, Wolfgang was senior economist in the Corporate Strategy Group of the World Bank in Washington, D.C. While in Washington, he directed the Global Public Policy Project in 1999, which provided strategic guidance on global governance for the then UN Secretary General Kofi Annan's Millennium Report. Wolfgang, welcome and thank you for joining us on Global Futures. Thank you, Joel. It's great to be here and I look forward to our conversation. And even more so, I look forward to yet another round of GGF. Can't wait to get going. Thank you. Now, let's get started. Many people believe that the European Union has been in an existential crisis for some time. We're coming close to the 10th year of the Eurozone debt crisis. The EU lacks common responses to major challenges, such as rising nationalism and populism, growing social and economic inequalities, the refugee challenge. Then there's the UK's vote to leave the EU altogether. As well as member states such as Hungary and Poland uh, define core democratic norms and values of the Union. In fact, Hungary's Viktor Orban, as you well know, was re-elected to a fourth term in office on the back of an anti-immigration nationalist agenda. The European Union has accused Poland of posing a grave risk to its democratic values, accusing it of undermining the rule of law by packing courts with loyalists. So my question to you is this, are we witnessing the gradual demise of the EU and a weakening of liberal democratic values that the European Union stands for? Thanks. Well, a tough question. Uh, it involves a lot of, uh, if you will, prospecting and even predicting um, that I, as you know, have always a hard time to do. But, but let me start by saying the following. No doubt the fall of the Berlin Wall and the subsequent collapse of the Soviet Union where I think everybody would argue in most cases, indisputably and, and in the majority of things, a good event. But to the extent that the sudden change was a surprise, uh, I think, for all of us, for which we were not really ready and prepared from the point of strategy, 
And to the extent that our existing regime of beliefs, values, rules, institutions, and pattern of behavior are tightly coupled to the former situation, that is the Cold War, and even the EU is, if you will, in some part at least, a, a child of the Cold War, and we don't have any clear plans to adapt to this radically new situation, then I am rather concerned about the future of the EU. And indeed, the many crises that you mentioned to me are in many ways a reflection of this. Now, once you begin to take such a broader, if you will, even par partially global perspective, it's not inconceivable to understand actually the period between 1945 and today as an historical aberration and that we are um, during, uh, t we're seeing tendencies and desires to return to the past, which is of course manifested most obviously in populism and nationalism, but um, that these dimensions are so huge. And if indeed the period 45 to today were an aberration, then we might be going back to the way the world existed beforehand, uh, much more dynamic, much less stable, uh, much more quickly changing. And indeed, we at least see a pressure to return to the traditional concept of a nation state and to run our politics primarily in the context of the concept of the nation state. I think we'll get back to that a little bit later on how realistic that is. Let's stick with the topic of nationalism and populism, because this is something we could not have possibly predicted a decade ago, but this is what we're seeing across Europe. Should we be looking at national governments and political leaders for answers on how to deal with this? Or in your mind, are there other options to turn this tide around? Well, I think this is still our primary frame of reference for politics. Politics is still primarily rooted nationally, if not even locally. So indeed, the answers, the drivers have to be come from the national level. The fact of the matter is, however, that many of the challenges that we face driven by economic globalization, by digitalization, by the technological revolution, are now global in many, many cases. So while the concrete answers and the implementation and the operationalization of those answers have to be national, regional, global, or, or local, we will not be able to solve many of those problems unless nations sit together and try to develop compromises on how to deal with, whether it's migration, whether it's terrorism, whether it's global financial instability, whether it's climate change and the many other problems that we face. Okay, let me just, let me just maybe add a few more things, um, taking this more historical perspective. Mm -hmm. What were the drivers of Europe, if you will, of European identity seen from a historical perspective? Um, one was internal, one was external. Internal one is, of course, Europe's um, devastating history, uh, most obviously characterized by two world wars. And the idea of European integration, of course, was that these kinds of events uh, would would never be able to happen again. And secondly, um, the EU then and, and until 1989 very much lived from the external threat, the existence of the Cold War and the threat of the Soviet Union. And so with the increasing disappearance of both the internal and the external driver of an EU identity, because my generation remembers those times a little bit, but the current generation of policymakers and certainly the future generations of policymakers are less likely to have this very, very vivid in their own memory. Uh, those two drivers of European identity will be increasingly and are being increasingly difficult to uphold. So what could be alternative drivers? And of course, obviously, what many people say is, well, but Europe is a normative power. For me personally, when we come to concrete politics and political actions, this term is in these days of insecurity 
and and uncertainty is simply too um, too weak. It's too undefined. It doesn't mean much, and in some ways, it even sounds to me. Uh, much too elitist. What does it mean to be a normative power? Now, for those of who have, uh, who understand this term, have to question it. Uh, to, where has the European Union really enacted its principles and its values of being a normative power? So I'm somewhat a little bit cautious about that. I'd also like to go a little bit back for a moment to your question about nationalism and populism. And I think we have to ask ourselves, what are the sources of what clearly, um, from a voting perspective, from the perspective of the voter, what are the sources of these strong forces of insecurity, fear of the unknown, uh, which to me requires, if we want to regain that part, if you will, of the electorate, we need to have much, much better narratives and explanations as to why this insecurity exists and what can be done about it. And at the risk of sounding, sounding somewhat condescending, I think we need to find better ways to explain to people what the current status quo is. What kind of a world are we actually living in? It's highly complex in nature. Uh, it's high degree of connectivity and interdependence. And I think we also need to be a lot more honest and admit that our ability to actually govern such a highly complex adaptive system with, as a result of the end of the Cold War, as a result of the rising powers, I think we'll talk about that as well a little bit, has become much more complex and has become more dynamic. So I ask myself, what would such a narrative look like? What would be the counter narrative to the populist nationalist narrative, which essentially tries to take us back to the 1930s? Um, and what would be the risks of taking us back to the 1930s? Be economic, social, and political risks. Um, whether we close uh, again the economic risks, the re economic repercussions, given that we are such a highly interconnected global economy, but also the political repercussions of recreating ever closed societies. So I think, as a response from a political, you asked me about the what, how can national governments react to this. We need to regain um, the narrative, we need to create one, and we have to mobilize people and people have to understand while maybe for the last 40 or 50 years, democracy has been understood in a rather passive fashion, sitting, going to vote every four years, but then letting politics being run and that worked quite well. Democracy needs to be understood as a much more active, as a much more proactive context. We need to mobilize societies, we need to mobilize those factions of societies, and they are many and they are large and they're significant that are in favor of an open society and we need to rebuild those majorities. One way to look at this and where is, this is very demonstrated very clearly is the degree to which political parties of all spectrums, left or right, are struggling currently with this new dimension of politics, namely open versus closed. Open society versus closed society, open data, open communication versus closed open and data and communication. And political parties are currently struggling to take this dimension into their programs. It's no longer left versus right, but it's also open versus closed. And as long as political parties cannot internalize these dimensions and develop very distinct positions, voters are likely to flock to those parties that will give them an answer. And that's exactly what we have seen in the last, let's say, uh, five, five to ten years. And of course, there are many other uh, mechanisms using technology on how we can reinvent democracy in a much more active fashion and how we can try and engage citizens more getting involved in defining what is the public interest, 
What are our visions uh, for the future? If there is this gap between the political elite, as you mentioned, and uh, the voters who turn up every four years, um, and yet it's the political elite, the administrations, the governments that have to make policies and deal with external actors. Let's stick with the EU for a moment. What is the glue that would keep the European Union together when they have to deal with countries such as China and Russia that do not necessarily share the same political values and norms? How, how is that possible? As I hinted at earlier, I think, or maybe I was, I said it right away, I think we're currently lacking a strong European identity. World War One and World War Two and the Cold War, those are gone. And we haven't reinvented, we haven't recreated a European identity. The concept of normative power, as I said, for me, is too weak and is too abstract, at least for the everyday individual in the street to identify him or herself with Europe. So we need to invent something different. And so the question is, why is Europe good for us? Can Europe better deal with the regional and global challenges that we face? That narrative needs to be created. That narrative needs to be delivered. And and people need to understand the benefits uh, that we derive from European integration and even in some cases from, from deeper global integration. But also they need to be reassured that we can also deal with the negative consequences of deeper integration, be it on the European side or be it on the global side. Let me turn our attention for a moment to uh, to China. China has been asked for a long time to be a responsible stakeholder. What we've seen in the past couple of decades is China has lifted millions of people out of poverty. It has been heavily investing in renewable energy at home. It stepped up to the plate in the Paris Climate Agreement. Um, it's also been leading uh, international trade and development projects such as the Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank, the Belt and Road Initiative, and also set up this BRICS Bank or the New Development Bank. So that seems to be a state that's interested in enhancing international trade and cooperation and certainly uh, its influence as well. So nothing irresponsible about that. Why is it then we see this pushback against such developments from the US and certain suspicions from corners of Europe about Chinese-backed initiatives? Well, I think, you know, primarily, first, let, let me get back to your mm -hmm. point about, about China becoming a responsible stakeholder. That to me is in many ways a reflection of seen from different perspectives, the, the naivete and even to some degree the hubris uh, by which uh, the West and in particular the United States looks at the phenomenon of rising powers. Everything that we have witnessed over the last a decade or two, and incidentally the rise of China started long uh, before the end of the Cold War, um, in retrospect, if we look at it now, it seems perfectly normal to be associated with a rising power of that size and of that dimension. So one shouldn't, one shouldn't be surprised that if China is not getting the kind of representation and respect in the existing institutional international order and has to fight over decades for an increased uh, voting share, whether it's in the IMF or the World Bank, that then China turns around and it has now the resources and the political power and creates a parallel international order. Uh, those that created the order, yes, they did provide many global public goods and stability, but they also derived um, very many benefits from that, from that global order. And China has understood that very well and therefore has begun to build this parallel order. How that order will evolve, what that order might or might not be used for is simply too early to tell. At the same time, China as a rising power will also create situations and moments that we don't feel very comfortable with. And so there are many fears right now that indeed a Chinese expansion, um, intellectual and otherwise economic, but also political, uh, into uh, in deep into our own societies, advocating its own 
form of social and political organization, which as we know is a lot more closed, you may want to call it authoritarian or state capitalism, uh, generates a certain amount of fear in our own circles. But I think this is actually should be welcomed. Uh, as I said earlier, we have been much too passive. If we believe that democracy and open society is indeed the better way to govern our own societies, then we shouldn't be afraid to, to face a challenger to that system. Now, in all honesty, personally, I have to admit that we haven't done very well in the last decade or so. If you look at the many challenges that we face, be they local, national or global, whether it's economic inequality, whether it's dealing with the many global crises, um, democracy hasn't done very well. And ironically, when we did have a crisis, such as the global financial crisis, we had to resort to instruments and political measures that look to me a lot more Chinese than democratic. The way we resolved the global financial crisis was to crisis management and top-down rather um, you know, state capitalist uh, tools and, 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 and instruments. And the less we can manage these problems through our traditional institutions and, and democratic processes, the more likely we will, we will have to return to crisis management in the area of environment, in the area of migration, in the area of global financial stability. And then the more we actually beginning to look like some of these authoritarian regimes, even though de jure, our system, of course, still relies on balance of power, of checks and balances, on the yearly, uh, four yearly uh, electoral cycle and so on and so forth. But de facto politics and policies day to day will have to rely increasingly on crisis management, which begins to look more and more like the traditional and typical tools that we see in countries like China or the Soviet Union. So in my ways, the challenges that we face If we do it right and if we do it well, should be welcome because we have to wake up and ask ourselves, we need to stop basking in the sun of overcoming the Soviet Union and stop speaking about the end of history, but looking in the mirror and asking how can we improve and make our own political and economic system more resilient so people begin to regain trust in those institutions and processes, which we all know, looking at the various measurements of trust, are all at an ever all-time low. You've mentioned people, you've mentioned democracy, and you've mentioned open society. And the asset that makes all these things work is essentially citizens. You've argued that global institutional architecture needs to allow civil society a bigger voice in rulemaking and implementation. Give us your thoughts on how this would work. Well, let me, to, to provide the context, let me step one step back. And, and this is a perfect example because The institutional infrastructure that currently, if you will, quote unquote, governs the global economy is now, what, 80, 70 or 80 years old and has been created at a time where the world looked entirely different. Uh, it was an intergovernmental world with economies. Yes, there was some trade and yes, there was some financial interaction internationally, but economies were still primarily acting and rooting in a national context. And there was a high degree of political and economic congruence. Um, between those two forms of social organizations. Nowadays, the global economy has completely outpassed and outgrown the way in which we run politics, uh, which are still trapped, if you will, by the concept of sovereignty and by the concept of territoriality. States and, and governments and democratic and authoritarian governments derive their legitimacy from being able to uphold sovereignty, to be able to, to uphold territorial integrity of their of the the countries that they run that is not the case uh, for the global economy and so there's a massive asymmetry between the tools by which we are supposed to govern economic interactions 
and the reality of today. And the only way to short of resorting to protectionism, nationalism, populism is to begin to think about building institutions and reforming and even transforming the global economic governance institution to the degree that they can actually begin to also govern global economic processes. And if we do that, and if we still believe in open and democratic societies, then clearly the wider population, not just through the content of its representative, of its governmental representative in international organizations, be that the UN, be it the World Bank, the IMF or the WTO, but in a much more direct fashion, needs to have access to these global structures of decision making. We face, by the way, a very similar dynamic in the European context. The European Parliament has grown in importance, is, is, has become more accessible. At the global level, and many of the problems that we're facing cannot be resolved at the European level, we are far removed from that. So we need indeed to begin to think about how would the governance structure of a World Bank, of an IMF, of a WTO look like, recognizing that indeed many of the political decisions that used to be taken at the national level now have to be taken at the global level, and how in what way can we provide access to civil society to participate in those decision-making processes. It cannot be a Seattle, it cannot be the street battles and demonstrations, it cannot be the G20 demonstrations that we saw in Hamburg a few months ago. It has to be a more structured uh, space. There has to be a political space needs to be created where we can have these deliberations. I want to get your take on the Global Governance Futures Program, or GGF as uh, we call it. You believe, and this is coming from the Purpose Beyond Power article that you wrote for Project Syndicate in 2013, and I quote, A truly global political space needs social and political entrepreneurs who are unafraid to work across the lines that traditionally divide sectors and nations. Do you think the Global Governance Futures Program is a step towards this call? And how can the program contribute to global public policy? Um, I do. And I think that was exactly the vision that we had when we built the program. It is both uh, tri-sectoral, representing key stakeholders from the key three sectors uh, in, in modern political economy, namely civil society, the private sector, and politics and governance, if you will. And it also tries at least to mirror the global nature of many of the problems we face by bringing together key countries, key stakeholders in a, a better and improved global governance. So in many ways, from, a, from looking at from a, from a structural perspective, it combines along two dimensions, uh, the crude the, the um, drivers, if you will, um, of whatever future global order um, may emerge uh, over the next 10, 10 to 20 years. And therefore, I think it's, it's an ideal setup. You've been part of the GGF program from the very beginning, and you've interacted with many of the fellows, now alumni of the program. If you could share a piece of advice with the incoming cohort of GGF 2030 fellows, what would be your advice? Um, actually, a couple. Let me start with that none of us, and I include myself in this, that I think for this particular constellation, coming from such different backgrounds, both in terms of your professional background, but also your cultural, historical, and geographic background, the first thing to do and really remind yourself every morning uh, when you look in the mirror is to be able to listen. And by listening, I mean making a true effort to understand and put yourself in uh, the shoes, if you will, of the opposite that you're talking to. I think that's very important. You have to have an open mind and really try to understand why is he or she making this kind of argument from her vantage point? Can I try to put myself in her vantage point and better 
understand this. This is a key skill. This needs to be learned. It doesn't come like this. Many of us in this, this day and age, with all the information that we're getting, uh, we pretend to listen, but we don't really listen. The second one, and this is closely related that, that uh, GGF always tries to project into the future uh, and even tries to create history of the future, which to me is such an important element of the program because we live in such highly uncertain times. And the, the hubris to think that we can actually project one single um, firm past going forward in the way in which uh, the future of the liberal or non-liberal international order is supposed to look like is, is uh, simply foolish. So we have to develop multiple histories. And one of the reasons why we have such a hard time doing that, and one of the reasons why we tend to project in a very unilinear fashion is because all of us, including myself, are subject to so-called cognitive bias that we all carry around and that we fall prey to it every day. So I think it would be very useful if all the participants are themselves aware of their own cognitive biases that they engage in every day when they try and absorb information or project um, their own views and visions. And my understanding, uh, specifically as it relates to scenario analysis, there are four biases um, that they should look up and maybe read about that are key uh, if you want that, that you should try to shed if you really want to engage in an open, diverse and prospecting conversation about the, how, how the future might possibly look like. There's, first of all, presentism. There is, secondly, the so-called confirmation bias. Third is something called anchoring. And fourth is called mirror imaging. And I'm not going to go into detail in these biases. Maybe we have a chance to talk about them when we meet. But those and many others are key to be aware of, to be conscious of, and work with yourself to try to sort of let them go. Third, I think the strengths of this program uh, lies, as I said already, in our diversity. And especially in this time of uncertainty and in this times of insecurity, and this is sort of the irony, as more and more political systems are flirting or even moving towards the top-down model of authoritarianism because of the insecurity and because we haven't offered any realistic, understandable alternatives, just at that very moment, it is actually diversity and the bottom-up process. And that's the only way would be for us to come up with sustainable, long-term, democratically acceptable solution. And so we need to much better understand and learn how to develop concepts and ideas and solutions to problems in a much more diverse environment. Um, that's key. And last but not least, and this is almost the most important factor to me, I call it the, the youth factor, uh, which I think is a huge asset to, um, to GGF. My generation in many ways was involved in the careful and sometimes not so careful dismantling of the old order. And to date, and I emphasize to date, we have been able to avoid any major catastrophes. We're not through yet, as we all know, especially in this day and age. But I think um, the order is no doubt severely weakened. And I think it's of great urgency that we begin to generate ideas and build visions of a new one. If we don't build a vision of a new forward-looking order, the automatic reflex will be in political systems that we have to look, to look backwards, to revert to nationalism, to try to build walls around us individually in a group and as nations, we will not advance forward. So it is very important to, to now begin to look forward. And I think here really, it is not my generation, but it's the GGF generation that needs to be uh, in the driving seat. It is their future. Um, they need to be in charge of it. And they, they need to do it in this open and diverse 
and being aware of cognitive biases way, as I suggested earlier. I'm afraid we have to leave it there, Wolfgang. It's been a pleasure speaking with you, and thank you very much for being on Global Futures Podcast. Thank you, John. Thank you for listening. This edition of Global Futures was presented by me, Joel Sandu, and produced by my colleague Sonia Sugubova from the Global Public Policy Institute. Our guest was Wolfgang Reinecke. The Global Governance Futures program brings together exceptional young professionals to look ahead 10 years and to think of ways to better address global challenges. For a full list of Global Governance Futures products, including scenario reports, opinion pieces, interviews, and other podcasts, visit ggfutures.net forward slash analysis. 